If you would please take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 4, the passage. Oh dear. The passage is printed in the bulletin. I just didn't change the reference at the top. But that is the right passage. That's from Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. Let me just remind you, since it's been a a week since we were in Luke, let me remind you again of the context uh, in which we read this passage because I want us to be able to sort of have the running start of the past couple chapters as we read what happens in this passage. Uh, If we go back to the beginning, of course, there's a couple chapters of the infancy narratives, all of the, the Christmas stories that we're well familiar with, and a lot of those are so important in setting the stage, the introductions for who Jesus is and what he comes to do. We read about Jesus' baptism, where Jesus is baptized and the heavens are opened and the Father declares that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, And then at the beginning of chapter 4 was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. After this great proclamation, this great affirmation of who Jesus is, the Son of the Father, beloved, he immediately is cast out into the wilderness where he is tested and tempted by the devil for 40 days and He succeeds. He passes the test. He he is not uh, tempted. He is tempted. He never gives in to the temptation. And then the passage we looked at most recently, the uh, first sermon that Jesus preaches in the synagogues here is now he's beginning his ministry, his public ministry. He preaches from Isaiah this passage that we read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So all of these things, it just keeps building up. There's, there's this uh, sense of anticipation right, with the baptism, the successful bout in the wilderness with Satan, and now this first sermon, and he proclaims what he has come to do to announce the year of the Lord's favor Uh, And now in this passage, we have the first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Luke. So we're still, we can still say this is kind of the beginning. This is the the kickoff of his public ministry, where Jesus goes out and he is healing and delivering people just as he has just said he was going to do in that passage that he quoted from Isaiah. Okay, so that's the context. We kind of get a running start. I'm going to read our passage today, and if you would, would you please join me in standing as we read and hear God's holy word together. This is Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. 
Lord, we thank you again for your word. It is powerful, living, and active, able to help, able to uh, teach and to instruct, to guide and to shepherd us in the life everlasting. We pray that by the power of your spirit, Lord, you would help us to receive it well, to open our ears, to open our hearts, to listen, to receive it, to obey it. Lord, we pray that you would draw us to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and to come and find rest in him through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be back. I was only gone one week, but I missed being with you last week. It always just doesn't quite feel right when a Sunday passes and I'm not here with my uh, church family. Uh, But I was in Virginia last week attending a funeral for my Aunt Barbara. Uh, And and that was a, a situation that as kind of a, a distant family member, I entered into with a, a little bit of emotional distance from the situation, but it was kind of a, as you might imagine, a, a little chaotic there for my Uncle Jerry, who's now left, and for the, the three kids who are my cousins, of course, who just lost their mother. And uh, my own mom was there helping to eulogize her younger sister. And, and it was just entering into this, this chaos, for, for lack of a more precise word, Uh, of a funeral, of a loss, of an untimely death. Uh, Yesterday, some of our friends from South Carolina buried their two-year-old who died this last week. And I know those aren't the only funerals that that we as a church have been a part of even in the last week and a half, much less the last couple months of the beginning of this year. Even in between those events, there have been other struggles, other sorrows, disappointments, stresses, bad news, all sorts of, of realities of life in this fallen and broken world uh, that I just kind of have labeled for today under the, the label of the, the chaos of life in a fallen world that uh, kind of includes all of these things that we struggle with. Life is chaotic and we can all add our own examples, even from this very week, of how life has been chaotic. And one of the questions that we take from life as we come into the scriptures is the very simple question, is Jesus able to help? Now, given the chaos that we live with, all of the brokenness that we live with, that we suffer under, is Jesus able to help in, in all of these things? What we read today, we read this uh, story. It's the first of Jesus' miracles in the book of Luke. The first of his miracles in in some sense, it helps us to answer that question. Is Jesus able to help in the times of chaos in our lives? Even though we, we know, kind of intuitively, we come to this passage and we know we don't see miracles of this caliber in our lives regularly. But it's the same Jesus. It's the same Savior who is in our lives, who we are now united to by faith, who is able to help. And I want us to see in this passage how Jesus is presented to us. One of the things that stands out is that Luke, in this passage and a couple others, has been making a big deal of the way that people respond and react to Jesus. When he has come in public ministries, he has always told us the way that people have reacted. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 47, here's the story of Jesus when he's a 12-year-old, but he's in the synagogue, 
and he's conversing and discussing with the, the teachers and the leaders of the synagogue. And in 247 it says, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding as he discussed things in the temple. In chapter 4, verse 22, and this is just the most recent passage of Jesus preaching, now as he's preaching from this passage in Isaiah, in 4.22 it says, And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And now in this passage it says, They are astonished at his authority. They are astonished at his authority. So here we have seen the reactions are always the same, but the, the reason is a little different. It says they've been astonished at his understanding. They've been astonished at his grace. And now they're astonished at his authority. Those are three characteristics of Jesus. And, and, it's, and, and what that means for us is when we come to Jesus, or when Jesus comes to us, right? regardless of the chaos of life, we are coming to a Savior who comes with understanding, with grace, and with authority. And the people are constantly astonished. They don't even anticipate that he comes with these levels of these things. And yet, uh, when we are following Jesus, when you are doing your best to walk by faith, right, to listen, to obey, and we're struggling with it, what does that mean? That means first Jesus has perfect understanding. Perfect understanding of your life, your circumstances, your heart. Uh, it also means he's completely gracious. He's loving and kind, not cruel. Uh, and he has authority. And there's no problem in life that is beyond the pale of what Jesus can handle. He comes into life as one who has perfect authority. And we can imagine, perhaps, what would it be like if Jesus were a God who had understanding, but didn't have authority. Right? If he had understanding, it would simply be frustrating. Perhaps here is one, someone who could come alongside you and sympathize, but couldn't do anything about it. And didn't have the a power or the authority to make real changes. Or what if Jesus had authority, but did not have grace or understanding? That would just be terrifying. Perhaps we've had bosses who are some of a, some sort of a reflection of that. They have the authority, but they don't have any grace, and they lack an understanding, and would be terrified and not able to trust. But here is Jesus, and he comes proclaiming the kingdom, and he comes as one who has understanding, who has grace, and who has authority. And so we ask the question, is Jesus able to help? Is Jesus able to help me? And I want us to look at this passage and see the many ways we can answer that question and say, yes, Jesus is able to help. And I want us to be able to think about this miracle. For a lot of us, at least if you're like, like me, I grew up in the church, I grew up in Sunday school, I grew up hearing these stories over and over, and so we come to them now, and it's almost easy just to kind of gloss over this. Right? We know the story, we know that Jesus does miracles, and we know the lessons we're supposed to learn. Right? Jesus is powerful. Jesus is divine, right? This is a proof of his divinity, that he is the Son of God. Or perhaps we can gloss over it thinking, you know, rightly or wrongly, we think, well, I don't suffer from demon possession that I know of, right? Neither do my family members. So this is not speaking to me. There's nothing for me to be gained. But I do want to invite us all today to take a second look at this story and to see here that Jesus is a Savior who willingly steps into our chaos whatever it may be, 
And he does it with understanding, grace, and authority. Because we see Jesus, he goes to this synagogue. And he goes as one with understanding, so he knows full well what he's getting into when he goes to this synagogue. Right? He's not surprised that there is a demon-possessed man in the synagogue who's no doubt acting out, no doubt making people uncomfortable. Jesus was under no illusions. Right? He didn't think, well, uh, you know, this will be just a, a happy, clean, well-functioning, middle-class synagogue where I will feel comfortable, all my needs will be met. And then he's blindsided by the fact that he gets there and, oops, there's lots of brokenness. Right? There's lots of sin. He's not surprised. He's not surprised. He has complete understanding. And it's the same when Jesus comes to us. Right? He's not surprised when he shows up in our life and finds whatever chaos there may be, whatever suffering, whatever doubt, whatever fear. There were probably other people in the synagogue who were embarrassed by it. Right? They want to present a good, clean image to the world. They think if visitors come into their synagogue and they see the reality of what life is really like in their synagogue, if they see the depth of the pain that is there, if they see all the effects of sin that it's having among the people in the synagogue, right, the visitors won't, won't like that. It wouldn't play well. They don't want visitors to come and on their first visit see, oh, there's a demon-possessed guy who's acting up again. That's embarrassing. We want to put on a better face than that. Don't we do that? We don't only do that with church, but even in our own lives, we, we want to put on a good face. We don't want to talk about the sin. We don't want to talk about the fear, the chaos, whatever kind of chaos it is, family chaos, career chaos, health chaos, uh, spiritual chaos. There's always a desire, there's a temptation, and this is a temptation that is common to man, to, to want to put on the mask, to put on the good face, pretend everything is fine. We're all happy, healthy, and we're all above average. But Jesus is not surprised, nor is he ashamed to enter into it. Nor is he ashamed to come stand beside us, to walk with us through it, to look all the chaos in the face with us. And the question is, is Jesus able to help? And the answer in this passage is absolutely Jesus is able to help. Let's just look in a little bit more detail about each of these three characteristics of Jesus, who is a savior for us in the chaos, that he enters in with full understanding, full grace, and full authority. So first, Jesus is a savior who enters into your life with full understanding. Now that includes first understanding of your life, of your circumstances, your disappointments, and your sins. Uh, and if we can be so bold as to say it, he understands your disappointments because he is the one who ordained them. Right? He is the God who has planned every one of your days before one of them came to be. Which means when you take joy in your joys, he's smiling with you because he has ordained those joys. And when you suffer in your disappointments, he holds your hand in those too because he has seen those coming. He is our God, our Father, who knows they have a, a divine purpose. These trials are not for nothing. He understands them. He understands your circumstances, but more than that, he also is a God who understands your heart in the midst of your circumstances. Right? He's not just external. He knows your fears, your anxieties, your doubts, your weaknesses, your triggers, right? because he created you. So he knows them. He knows your temptations. 
He knows those things in life which cause temptations to rise and where they get to the level where they're really hard for you to bear. He made you. He knows these. He knows your secret sins. And he knows them not as fearful judge who comes with an iron fist, but he knows them rather as a compassionate friend. A compassionate friend who comes to walk beside you, to sit with you in the pain, who cares deeply for you, who cares deeply for your well-being. You see, in our fear, don't we often accuse Jesus of having a lack of understanding? Don't we often, perhaps silently, internally, if we're not so bold as to speak these things, we're afraid and we react with anger, with accusations, with blame-shifting, even blaming Jesus for not having full understanding. Notice how the demon, or this demon-possessed man, speaks to Jesus in verse 34, where he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I hear it seems that the demon is speaking for himself and for this man who he has possessed. He's us, both of us. Have you come to destroy us? And those are the questions of a demon. But wouldn't we have to admit those questions sound a lot like our questions sometimes? Have you ever asked a question like that in a time of chaos where you just cry out, Lord, why now? What are you doing? Right, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Are you trying to destroy me? Right? Or, or we silently think, does the Lord just have it out for me? Right, Because nothing is going well. Nothing has lived up to our hopes, dreams, or expectations. And we wonder, Lord, have you just come to destroy us? Is that your plan? And your sovereignty is, am I just one that you're here to destroy? And our fears sometimes get the best of us, uh, we have to admit. We wonder, is God really even in control anymore? Does he really care about us? If so, why would this happen? Why would he allow this? And that's okay to ask those questions. God is not afraid of our questions. God has full understanding. He knew those questions were in your heart before you spoke them. We remember no less than David in the Bible cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus cried out. Feeling forsaken by the Father, you see, our deepest fear perhaps is not that Jesus is not perfectly sovereign. One of our deepest fears perhaps is that he doesn't have understanding. He doesn't see things from our perspective. He's working without all the facts we have. Right, and we say that and that sounds silly. We know better. But have you ever felt that? Have you ever feared that? Have you ever suspected if he saw things from my angle, he would do things differently? We fear he's going to get something wrong because he doesn't do things the way we would do them, so he must not see things the way we would see them. But we see the people have been astonished once already at his understanding. Jesus works with full understanding when he comes into our lives. Second, he not only comes with full understanding, he enters into our lives with grace. Right? The people have been astonished at his gracious words. He enters into the chaos of your life, not only with full understanding, but with purposes, with plans, and with objectives that are objectively good. They are good. They are gracious, and they are good, and they are loving, and they are kind. All his purposes for you are good. They are for your sanctification. 
They are for your Christ-likeness. Now, see, sometimes we go astray because we define the word good on our own terms. We say, yes, we want Jesus' purposes to be good, and here's what I mean by good. And this is exactly what I want that to look like. God, of course, defines good in terms of his own ultimate plan of conforming you perfectly to the image of Christ. God thinks that is very good. Good for you, ultimately good in every sense. Because he knows that your greatest joy is going to be found in glory with Christ. Your greatest joys will be attained because you are like Christ. You will see him and you will be like him on that day. And that will be the greatest joy that you have. And so what God does oftentimes is to refuse to settle, to allow you to settle for anything less than that. To settle for lesser joys, no matter how uh, desperately we might cry for these lesser joys. God sees the bigger picture. Sometimes we really hate that. We really get our minds set on a lesser joy. And we end up accusing God of being cruel or, or not understanding because he doesn't let us have the lesser joy. But God, through Christ, has purposes that are gracious and they are good. Uh, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God worked, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? We know that. That's not trite when we know that by faith. Sometimes, again, we may fear that Jesus might enter into life with understanding, but not with grace. That is, we know he knows all things, but he's God. But, but we have this fear that perhaps, yes, he knows all things, he's omniscient, but what if he doesn't have my best interest at heart? Right, what if he has some plan and I just don't really play into it that much? We fear that maybe we're going to get run over, we're going to get forgotten, we're the collateral damage while God is up to something else, something bigger, something better perhaps, but it doesn't involve us. Or we fear his purposes might not be best. Honestly, and we all know this, when disappointment comes, when life is hard, when things don't go the way that we want them to go, it can be hard. It can be hard for us to truly and sincerely believe that God is up to something good, that God is in control and that he's understanding and gracious. It can be hard to hold all those things together. We think there must have been an easier way. Why did God choose to do it the hard way? Perhaps he's not gracious. Or perhaps your fear is even a little darker than that. Right? That, that you fear that God's purposes for you are not gracious. You understand that in general God is full of grace, but what about his purposes for you? And you fear that if there is suffering in life, Perhaps God has ordained that because he's mad at you. Because he knows your sin and he's going to make you feel a bit of pain for it. Have you ever had that fear? Have you ever worried that he's not truly gracious? And then we think, well, if I had been better, if I had tried harder and lived a better life and been more holy, my life would be easier because God would be rewarding me more for that. And we know exactly what that is when we say it out loud. We think, God responds to our works. We are saved by what we do, and we say, that's not right. We know we live under God's grace, but, but these are fears, and we have them. But notice, look at verse 35 here in chapter 4. Jesus dealing with the demon. Verse 35, Jesus rebukes the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. 
do you wonder why does Luke take the, take the trouble to point out for us that the demon did this man no harm? The way Jesus saved him, there was no harm that was done. Despite having been uh, possessed by this demon, even the scholars and the commentaries, they surmise a bit on why does it include this detail? Perhaps the common understanding of the day was that this demon possession was terminal, and the only way for the man to, to be separated was through death, that the man had to die in order to be saved. Perhaps the understanding was that uh, this man, there was a chance of him being rescued, but it was going to involve great pain, great suffering. Right? He was going to have to be purified by pain. He was going to have to really suffer as this demon came out of him. Perhaps it was the same fear that the demon-possessed man voiced, have you come to destroy us? Right? The same fear that Jesus is so disappointed in us, so let down by us, that he has not come into your life to heal, to love, and to save. But rather, he's just come to destroy. He's just come to vent his displeasure and to make us suffer. But the passage clearly shows us that Jesus has a much better picture. Here's a Savior who enters into this chaos with gracious intentions to come and to save this man and to, to allow no harm to be done to him in the process. So he's just proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, liberty for those who are oppressed. And now immediately he goes and he finds someone who's oppressed, oppressed by a demon, an unclean demon, at that. And he immediately sets him free. He immediately proclaims liberty for him. He's coming here not in wrath, but he's coming in grace with love for this poor man who is oppressed and he comes to set him free. And here we even see this detail. It says the demon had thrown him down in their midst. He throws the man to the ground and so there's this moment where we, we know that Jesus has come to set him free, to proclaim liberty, to announce the coming kingdom of God. And yet there's this moment in the midst of it where the people who are watching have to hold their breath. The man has just been thrown to the ground by the demon. And they have to wonder. Right? Based on what they see, there's at least this split second where they think to themselves, is the only way for this man to be saved through dying? Right? Is, is the demon going to kill him before he lets him go? But it says he came out having done no harm. It seemed like that was in doubt. Right? The man is thrown to the ground. It seemed like that might have been in doubt whether or not there would be harm done. But it was never in doubt in Jesus' mind. The end was never in doubt for Jesus. Jesus is a gracious surgeon in this case who comes to heal and to see that no harm is done at all to the patient. From a human perspective, no doubt, it would have been easy to look at this man's life and to say, these problems are just too severe, too intractable, this chaos is too deep, the problems are too complex, we see no hope in this situation. But Jesus comes and speaks this gracious word and delivers him from death and he delivers him completely. No harm is done to this man. That's the work of Christ in the life of his people. Right? That he comes and can enter into this situation no matter how full of chaos it may be and you fill in your own blank to what that chaos may look like in your life. But Jesus comes in and no problem is too intractable for him, and no, no chaos too severe or too deep for him. 
that he, his gracious purposes cannot set you free and redeem you from that with no harm at all coming to you. He is a gracious Savior who comes to save. Now he comes with understanding and he comes with grace and he also, thirdly, he enters into your life with authority. Grace, understanding, and also authority. And this is good news. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and he walks with you. The King of kings, who has authority over all things, walks with you. And here's one of the reasons that the Bible says we can trust him. We can cast our anxieties upon him because he can do something with them. Because he has power and authority to be able to act. Just as he says, Matthew 28, right after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is powerful. He is on the throne. But you know what we notice, and we have to see this in this passage, don't miss this, the crowds are astonished at his authority before he casts out the demon. It's not just the action. It's not just the miracle. It's not just the demon exorcism that causes the people to be astonished. Look at verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. He hasn't even introduced the demon-possessed man yet, and the crowds are already astonished at him. And they're astonished that he has come and he has taught them and he has spoken his word to them as one who has authority. They're amazed at his teaching. And it's not till verse 36, it says again, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the spirits. The authority of Jesus here is demonstrated in two different ways. There's the authority of his word, which is spoken. And then secondly, there's the authority of his action and his power, which he does. First, it comes, though, through his words, through his teaching and preaching. And that also is good news. Here is Jesus coming not just as one who offers his own opinion on the matters of the day, but Jesus comes as one who speaks authoritatively And the thing that he speaks is to proclaim good news, right? To proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He comes as one who says, come to me, all you who uh, are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He comes as one who says, uh, to not have anxieties, right? Why, Why do we fear? Because he is the one who comes with authority to speak these things, And he comes knowing that they are true. And so the first authority of Jesus is simply the authority of his word, and so we submit to that. We listen to it. We give our lives to it. But secondly, he comes with authority and power in his actions. That's probably what we think of first, but it's what's presented second. That here he comes into this situation of this craziness, right? this extreme chaos, going to, to church, and finding a demon-possessed man there. And yet he enters into that as the king of kings with full authority. He's not, he's not stressed by this. In the people's mind, no doubt, this one is embarrassing and intractable. But we already know earlier in the chapter, Jesus defeated Satan three times. And certainly he's not worried about this one. He speaks a word of rebuke, and the demon gives up immediately. The demon submits because he knows the king of kings is in his presence and has rebuked him. He has no choice. Jesus comes with all authority in your life. Now this is really good news also. 
I want you to hear this as good news, that Jesus is king and he reigns. He comes with authority, uh, he comes with grace, he comes with understanding, but nevertheless, there might still be a question left in your minds. Right? If, if Jesus indeed has all understanding, grace, and authority, why am I still suffering? Right? Why is there still chaos? If all this is true, why has he not done something about it and rescued me from my trials? That's a good question to ask. That's a good question to ask. It's worthy of being asked. The one with all understanding does not fear any of our questions, that's for sure. And the Bible, I believe, gives a, a really good answer to that really good question. But it's not here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's at the end of his ministry when Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the beloved of the Father, lays down all of his authority and goes to the cross. When he goes to the cross, he's doing something far greater in that moment than just speaking a word to save you. He's laying down his life to save you. Here's the one with all authority, willingly laying it down. Laying it down to take on the role of the servant, to serve you. You see, at the cross, he does something so much greater and so much more helpful for you than just removing your trials. He forgives your sins. He clothes you in righteousness. He, he unites you by faith to himself so that your salvation is utterly and evermore secure so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we read what Paul writes, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give you all things? See, at the cross, we see in that one moment, here's the picture where it all comes together, we see perfect understanding of your need, of your greatest need, perfect understanding of it. And we see perfect grace towards you, towards all of your needs, towards every fear that you feel, perfect grace, and it is the perfect use of his authority. And he exercises that authority in a very unexpected way, but he exercises it on your behalf. He lays it down to serve you, to save you, to do for you what you can never do for yourself. He lays it down in order that all the evil that we fear will never ultimately hurt you, will never ultimately have the last word over you. All the chaos that we fear and that we often feel in life can really never touch you, right? We are afraid. We are sorrowful for it. But we are safe from it also. We are safe from it and we rest in that. And yet, we continue to wait, don't we? We wait. We wait for that day when our king makes all things new. When he who is seated on the throne wipes away every tear from our eyes. And friends, that day is coming. That day is coming. It's not far off now when our deliverance will be complete. All our trials removed and we will not be hurt. They will do us no harm. It looks like it. We feel it in the moment. It looks scary for a moment but they will do us no harm because of the Savior is near. And he comes with perfect understanding, perfect grace, and all authority. Entering into your chaos, taking it on himself in order to bear it all away. And it says the people are astonished. And they're amazed. Are we astonished? 
Are we amazed? Will we follow him? Have we submitted to him? Have we known his grace? Now is the day of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's good favor. Jesus Christ, our Savior, he is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is good and he does good. He's good to his people, that he does come with understanding, grace, and authority. And Lord, we thank you that he has gone to the cross for us, that we might have perfect assurance that there is no condemnation for us. Lord, we do ask that by the power of your spirit, you'll press your word on our hearts, make it effective, cause it to bear fruit, cause it to bear the fruit of joy, of hope, and of deep abiding trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, cause it to bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown in your word today. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.